This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. This season of Burned by Books has been full of wonderful guests from the opening. But this, the 10th episode, is especially exciting for me. I hope you'll feel the same. I will be joined today by Jennifer Egan, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the author of The Invisible Circus, Look at Me, The Keep, A Visit from the Goon Squad, Manhattan Beach, and the subject of our interview, The Candy House, out today from Scribner Books. The Candy House returns the reader to the lives of some memorable secondary characters in Goon Squad with Jennifer's recognizable stylistic verve. But whereas Goon Squad was very purposefully modeled after a concept album, with each section developing an underlying theme, Egan describes Candy House as operating with the rises and drops of electronic dance music. Where Goon Squad interrogated the notion of a singular timeline, Candy House engages human consciousness as a space within which the novel can organize itself. Jennifer Egan, as always, balances the profound intellectual problems of existence with characters who feel deeply real by virtue of their uncommon minds. We get to talking about how her process is one of discovery through the unconscious practice of writing and the ways in which certain ideas of what the reader should feel and experience guide her structure. We discuss her creation of the futuristic machine in the candy house that, in the end, performs what only the novel can produce, a window into the minds and memories of another. On the subject of movement back and forth through time and place, Jennifer credits a marvelous children's novel for the concept of parallel worlds into which characters can dip in and out of. I could not have asked for a more engaging conversation about an author's own work. 
and I ended our interview with the desire to return to all of her previous novels. I hope you too will find her as compelling, thoughtful, intellectual, and engaging as I did. Please enjoy my interview with Jennifer Egan. Welcome back to Burned by Books. When Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad won both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2010, it was praised for melding formal innovation with narrative propulsion. It was seen as a novel testing the limits of that genre while experimenting with the elasticity of our perception of time. The Book Critics Circle called it a novel at once experimental in form and crystal clear in the overlapping stories it delivers, offering us a, sen a sense of youth and what gets lost along the way. That novel heralded a new and exciting future for the novel form, even though Jennifer herself hedges on whether or not novel is the right term for what she had produced. Already a novelist of popular and critical acclaim, having published The Invisible Circus, Look at Me, The Keep, Goon Squad propelled Jennifer into the cultural consciousness of her moment. She followed on from that success with Manhattan Beach, a novel that on the surface couldn't be more different from its predecessor. A historical novel of the early 20th century New York, Manhattan Beach, was praised for its elegant prose and its cinematic scope, with the New York Times proclaiming that it belonged in the canon of New York novels. When word circulated that Jennifer was writing a sequel of sorts to Goon Squad, there was a great social media eruption of anticipation, but tempered with some wariness. Goon Squad was a novel so exquisitely of its moment that a return might feel untimely or even antiquated. But the book that she has written, The Candy House, is something altogether different. Candy House does indeed reinvest in the lives of several characters who were described in Goon Squad, and the novel is organized in a formally similar structure with section breaks that displace the reader through time and space refocusing on new characters with new plot lines. Like Goon Squad, Candy House might be mistaken for a collection of linked short stories. But what distinguishes this new novel and marks it as a departure from any Jennifer has previously written is the audaciousness of its experiment with thought. Midway through the novel, I began to realize that the immersiveness of the plot, which is at times all-consuming, is partly a function of the way it tests forms of human thinking and perception. Each section and chapter, each character and narrative focal point is an opportunity to change the novel's means of perception and mode of thinking. Sometimes that shift is very apparent, as when a programmer who is neurodivergent describes how he uses quantitative methods to understand his feelings, or when a techno-enhanced spy speaks of herself and of her mission in an abstract third-person declarative, as though she were a field manual. But at other times, the testing happens as characters confront the meaningfulness of their own memories, traumatic, beautiful, and otherwise. Each section appears to ask a series of fundamental questions about the nature of our cognition, with the goal of trying to understand how we process the world with our own memories, 
or should I say our faulty, limited human memories, which we stitch together with narrative in order to convince ourselves that we are singular beings that matter more than just our temporary existence in the material plane. Taken in full, the candy house left me with a sense of revelation and of being asked to reconsider the boundaries of myself and others as discrete individuals. Perhaps this is then where the divergent interests of Goon Squad and Candy House meet up again, where Goon Squad saw the, saw the fallacy of understanding human existence as a gathering of stories in one unbroken timeline. Candy House breaks apart our understanding, and in some senses, the history of the novel's understanding, when it shows the flaws in the idea of humans as, a, as singular consciousness. Of course, as you would expect, Jennifer's novel is so much more than just this one revelation. And for that reason, and many others, I'm so lucky to welcome Jennifer Egan to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, the Candy House is being received by many as a sequel to A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize and is much beloved by readers and critics. While there are certainly characters shared between the two books, it feels to me less like a sequel and more like a brand new literary experiment that shares some genetic material with your previous work. But I'd love to know how you conceive of the relationship between the two. I like the way you describe it, sort of using some genetic material to do something different. I, I don't think of it as a sequel at all, because to me, a sequel really implies that having read the predecessor is a distinct advantage. And I don't think that's the case here. I, I thought of it as ideally having the same relationship to Goon Squad that the chapters within both have to each other. In other words, mm. each stands on its own, each is about different things and each has its own sort of technical and and craft choices but they're 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 all telling different stories and yet hopefully together can be synthesized into a larger story hmm. had you thought for a while about the possibility of giving a fuller story to the characters that return to us in candy house Mostly, yes. There were certain characters that who felt a little bit just not fully, well, not explored at all in some cases. I mean, mm -hmm. there are characters in the Candy House whom we only hear of by name in Goon Squad. Um, but, but in many cases, I had an inkling of future facts about people that I wasn't able to explore in Goon Squad, just because, you know, at a certain point, you have to draw a boundary around <laughs> your material or it just keeps expanding infinitely. Um, so, for example, Bix Boughton, who ma makes a very brief appearance in Goon Squad, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't remember him, and it's certainly not necessary that a reader does remember, but he he basically predicts the impact of social media uh, very briefly in, in one of the chapters of Goon Squad. He's, he's that guy in the early 90s who was online before most <laughs> of the rest of us even knew what that meant. Um, and so he talks about how everyone we've lost will find or they'll find us. And in the moment of writing that, and, and my writing process is pretty unconscious, so often I have a sense of discovery and surprise. Actually, ideally, I have that sense as I'm working. In the moment of writing that, I thought, oh, I wonder if he 
actually invents social media. Maybe mm. he sees it ahead of everyone else and actually makes it happen. So I sort of had an inkling that he would become a tech icon. And knowing that about him and having the reader have absolutely no idea of it created the feeling that there was more out there for me to explore. And I felt that about about a few of the characters. Uh, Lulu was another one. You know, we, we meet her as a child, uh, kind of opaque child in mm -hmm. one chapter of Goon Squad and in another chapter as a sort of opaque young adult. Um, and I and the minute I encounter something like opacity, I immediately think, so what's behind it? We can't, I can't just keep showing that. I have to get in inside it. And so often it was a feeling of either unsatisfied curiosity about characters, facts that I knew that the reader didn't know, and 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 even just a sense of, of potential or unfinished business that that was kind of tingling at the edges of my mind that made me want to continue. I uh, those two characters in particular I encountered as though they were brand new to me and only in retrospect sort of returned and remembered oh yes Lulu was there and and Bix very briefly but I liked that element of it actually that you know, they had this history in another time and another place, even if I couldn't remember it precisely. I liked that they had, it gave them a, a little extra depth. I sort of feel that in a way it might be more satisfying to read Candy House first and then go to Goon Squad. Mm. Because as you say, you know, there's, you, these are not people most readers of Goon Squad, unless they finished it a week ago, are going to remember. But their curiosity about these people after reading Candy House might make it satisfying to revisit their pasts or, uh, you know, other, other periods of their lives. Because in fact, Candy House contains material that happens earlier in time than anything in Goon Squad. So that's another reason it's not really a sequel. It does go later in time, but it also goes earlier. And both books are, are achronological. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the order of events is really not uh, a, an organizing factor in either one. I love that. And now I'm going to return to Goon Squad and, and see what it does to my my sense of these characters. Even those who haven't read Goon Squad probably remember hearing about the section of the novel that takes the form of a PowerPoint presentation. At the time, it felt as though you were stretching open the bounds of the novel's form to see what it might contain while still allowing narrative to continue. The Lulu sections in Candy House have some of that playfulness, but your interest seems to have shifted from visible formal play to the relationship between the conscious mind and narrative more broadly. Would you talk a bit about how you decided to center the novel on the question of human consciousness and the desire to share in another's interior life? Well, I sometimes don't really decide exactly what my books are going to be about odd as that sounds i'm i i discover it through a somewhat unconscious writing process and then i try to you know lean into what seems the most interesting and try to mm. you know f build a book around that let's say so what i what i thought or initially some of my guiding ideas as i basically meandered around in in 
in characters who interested me from Goon Squad. And by the way, I had a lot of material that didn't work out. A lot of first draft material that I couldn't make use of, really for both books, but even more for Candy House than Goon Squad. But Goon Squad is a, is a conscious exploration of time. And I thought, why don't I tr think about space as a kind of organizing construct mm. for the Candy House? And specifically the way, I mean, Goon Squad looks at, in part, the ways in which technology have changed our relationship to time. And I was very interested in the ways in which technology has changed our conception of space. And so that was an idea that I had very strongly. In a way, what you're saying about consciousness and, and for sure consciousness becomes very, becomes overt as a preoccupation of the book. It's somewhat related to this idea of space because there's, I, I was, I'm, I remain, I will always be fascinated by the infinitude of an individual consciousness. The, the strange paradox of the fact that, you know, there are so many of us people and we are, we are certainly categorizable and comprehensible as groups. And we, I think that we're all more and more aware of that as data study um, and information technology becomes ever more predominant. And yet individually, we are not only infinite, but unknowable mm -hmm. to anyone and even ourselves, <laughs> because <laughs> we've seen so much more than we can ever access in any moment. So all of that really fascinates me. Those, I, I, a lot, I was interested in paradoxes of human behavior and human experience and consciousness seems to inhabit one of those paradoxes and it's also of course the 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 job of a fiction writer if if i could pick one thing that a fiction writer is is doing that other kinds of creators are not doing as directly Certainly anyone working in a medium that is image-based is not doing this directly. Mm -hmm. The thing that fiction writers do is give us the, the experience of being inside another person's mind, which is the one thing we can never do in real life. And it's the thing that, that we are, that we, I think we crave this experience because partly because it's impossible to get it. I'm not sure we really want it actually, <laughs> but there is that wish for, for, you know, knowledge that we can't possess. And so I guess it was, it was interesting to me. It became very interesting to work on a book that was about the very thing that fiction does. Although ironically, what, what the way that I ended up exploring this is via an invented machine mm. whose business is to externalize consciousness for, so that it can be studied and examined and revisited in full. I felt like very much that you were trying to pull back the pull back the curtain from the novel's own machinery, its own workings, to see how it asked these questions about interiorities and to whom, um, you know, do we have access and why do we long for access to our own memories and thoughts when they are principally how we define ourselves, and yet they often feel distant or opaque or as though they're you know, fading away. 
And so I began to think of the candy house as a kind of like a, a machine that we got to watch operating. So it's interesting that you, you know, you have a literal machine, but the novelistic machine that's, you know, inside this work is showing us something about how that process operates. I think that's true. I mean, in a way, every book is, I often think, I mean, first of all, ideally, a book is doing many, many things at once, mm -hmm. just as our perceptions are doing many, many things at once within a world that is doing many, many things at once. So there's such complexity and a kind of infinitude, really, that we're trying that as a fiction writer, I'm always trying to suggest in in a comparatively compressed form. One of the ideas sometimes when I when I start a novel, again, with with often little idea of what it's really going to be about per se i have a certain idea certain possible ideas of what i want the reader to experience and in this case i found myself thinking about moving among worlds and i thought about the novel prince caspian um which i think is the second in the narnia series in yeah. which characters jump in and out of pools and each pool leads to a different world and i kept thinking that's, I want that to be the experience of the book, which in a way is, I guess that's one way of describing the experience of Goon Squad in that each chapter has a different technical approach. But I really, I wanted, I guess, to make, to foreground that sense of the texture of each world we enter being different from the others. And I love the idea of chapters in a way, having a kind of, having a relationship to each other that involved a sort of portal of going from one to the next. And some of this was like, one of my sons was really into D&D &D for a while, Dungeons and Dragons, and I would listen to the dungeon master and sort of looking at these graph paper maps and representing worlds that people can move between. And all of that was really fascinating. And I kept thinking, so what is the device? What am I, what is the thing that lets us do this, at least in the fictional world I'm imagining. And I would think, are these different apps that let you go in and out of different worlds? I mean, I was, I was struggling to find a technological analog, if you will, for the experience I wanted to create. And I'm not actually very technological. So I guess that's why I, I found it. I found myself having a kind of crude relationship to what the possibilities might be. And I, I kept thinking, well, what about a machine that lets you find out what has happened to someone that you haven't seen in a really long time? How, what kind of machine would that be? So I was really coming at this almost inductively thinking, here are all the things I want to do. What's, what's a machine that would let me do that? Hmm. And, and ultimately, I, and I don't, there was not a moment where this happened, but it be, these, these wishes of mine began to coalesce around the notion of a device that could externalize consciousness and ultimately, if the person so desired, merge that consciousness with a collective of other consciousnesses so that all of that information would be in one place and searchable. We should talk for a second about that technology and about the way in which it is one of the kind of threads that connects these sections or portals or however we're going to describe them. But the the thing that Bix Boughton makes, um, which ultimately becomes own your unconscious, is a technology that allows 
for retention of everything. Nothing is ever lost. You retain a catalog of every event and its memories. The society of the Candy House has invested itself deeply in this nostalgia time machine into which one pours memories and experiences to be re-remembered endlessly. What do you think drives a culture to become so nostalgia-obsessed? And is this what social media is and does for us now? Well, for sure, what I'm positing as the, the, the functionality of this machine is very close to what the internet does now. You know, we can encounter all kinds of information about other people, stories told by other people, it, there's you know, sort of an infinite amount of information that has nothing to do with us that is at our fingertips. So I think one reason I liked the idea of this machine is that it, it was in a space that I really like to occupy if I can while writing fiction, which is that something is both impossible, even a little ludicrous, but also plausible. Like mm. it, it feels, it feels right or it feels possible, even though it, it, it absolutely is out of the question. I, I love it if both those things can be true because it, it just feels like it's very, it is a position of great aliveness to try to encompass mutually exclusive realities. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think one reason that the machine was of interest to me right from the start, once I had finally conceived of what it might be, it was this sense that it essentially echoes what the internet is already doing. And yet it's out of the question. We don't understand the brain well enough. Mm, or, or even, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it completely, but, but it's funny. I've had readers say to me, how close are we to be, being able to do this? Which to me is a measure of how, much we feel that we are already doing it while uh -huh. we call online. Um, so, so I think that yeah, I'm not a big social media person and certainly not a big social media presence. So I would call myself a, a kind of a, a, a listless spectator at best, <laughs> but I'm interested in these phenomena and the way that they affect people. That's what interests me about technology. Technology itself is, I find, actually sort of dull and, and a bit frightening, both frightening in the sense that I'm really bad at using it and <laughs> frightening in the sense that I worry that it's going to destroy the world. So I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a loser when it comes to, I, I, you know, a late adopter, a late and incompetent adopter is how I would describe myself. <laughs> but watching what happens in the culture in response to technology, the way it functions is totally fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So um, so I am sure that my inclinations in these directions are informed by social media and online experience. There's no question about it. And this space that you describe, this liminal space where something can be both ludicrous and, and possible, I really think that is a, that's one of the wonders of fiction. And yet I've never heard it put to exact words in that way. And I, I really like the way you're conceiving of it. And it helps me to understand why I am drawn to things in, in fiction that seem 
kind of bizarrely outside of our capabilities and yet at the same time, well, oh yeah, I could see that happening. And that's the attraction of these kind of imaginings of what is the next thing. If our, mm -hmm. if our desire for what social media purports to do, which is to give us these threads of connection with all these people that we either know well, know a bit, or know not at all, then how far will that go? And you seem to be wanting to take that to its kind of nth degree. Yeah, and I think, I think that I'm, you know, my goal is not to instill dread. I, I that is never, that, that, in fiction doesn't interest me that much. My driver, more than anything, is curiosity. You know, if I'm not curious about it, if I'm not genuinely interested in what these possibilities might be, it wouldn't feel alive enough for me to pursue it in mm. fiction. And I think maybe part of this is also having done a fair amount of journalism over the years. I feel like for me, that is the realm to sort of to, to dig in and, you know, form an opinion and, you know, bring the facts to the reader, hopefully in an objective way, but often in the process of it to, to really know myself what I think. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with fiction, it's almost the opposite. I, I, I'm drawn to things about which I don't know what I think. And I only learn what I think from finding out what the book ends up being. Mm, that, uh, so that, that that's a wonderful uh, reimagining, uh, reimagining or updating of the Forrester quote. How do I know what I think until I see what I say? That is that absolutely captures it. And I often find that actually I think the opposite of what I thought I would think. Mm -hmm. So one example is with my novel, Look at Me, I thought, OK, I'm interested in how mass media and image culture, and mind you, this book was published in 2001, so pre-social media or any of that, early internet days, how all of that has affected our internal, our, our self-images, our perceptions of ourselves. And the very fact that I was asking the question somewhat suggests that I felt it had had an effect, that as human beings, we were qualitatively different as a result of these of the mass media and image culture, but what the but what the story that the book ends up telling, and what I realized is actually what I think, is that it actually does not, cannot touch our innermost selves. Mm. It it has an effect, but there's something deeply human and deeply private that it cannot reach. So that was an interesting thing to learn. <laughs> I want to return to that idea that you broached of not wanting the novel to produce dread. And I'm thinking of the kind of techno-futuristic versions of this sort of technology, this sort of memory-gathering technology in pop culture. It makes me think of the Black Mirror episode, the entire history of you, and of actually several other things in pop culture, but they are all very dystopian. And I'll just, you know, say as at least my own opinion that I don't find this novel dystopian at all. And I don't feel it um, filled with dread, as you say. Am I right in thinking that you're not terribly interested in dystopia as a as a powerful idea? So far, I have it has not been a motivating vibe for me. I can't quite explain why I feel a lot of dread in real life. <laughs> Um, I'm an anxious person and I worry a lot, but 
for some reason, this book in particular is is pretty optimistic, which was another big surprise because although I started it during the Obama years when I felt a lot of optimism about American life and, and American culture, I also wrote a lot of it during the Trump years when I didn't feel that so much. And then during the pandemic when, you know, no one knew what, what was going to happen. And I guess we kind of still don't. So there was a lot of uncertainty and dread that I was feeling. I think maybe what, what it comes down to is that, you know, for me, writing fiction is a kind of transcendence and escape from the realities of my life, which I enjoy thoroughly, I should mm-hmm. say. But the, it's the it's the it's the kind of childhood that that promise of childhood literature that you get to go through a boundary and enter a different world. It's like Narnia. That's what writing fiction is for me. Mm-hmm. To me, all of those books are like metaphors for re- what writing and reading actually do. So my motivation is to move away from whatever reality I'm experiencing, and I and maybe that's why this book. It seems to express so much optimism that I wasn't always feeling as I was working on it, but maybe it was what I wanted to find my way to as an antidote to what I actually was feeling. When I finished the novel, and I won't give away the last um, few lines, but it was incredibly hopeful and filled me with a, a, a great deal of optimism, even though there were so many quite bleak things that had happened in the course of the novel. And uh, I think perhaps that maybe that's more interesting to me in, in fiction, in ways of seeing things that are desperately urgent about our own society in different forms, different places, different worlds, but then having a future vision of what could come that might be an optimistic world. And in that way, being the opposite of the kind of nostalgia drive of the collective consciousness and being more what the novel's capability is. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, it's again. It has to be something that 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 provokes my curiosity and feels alive. And I feel like those are the things that really matter to me. You know, I I, I definitely like to have a strong girding of of intellectual preoccupation around what I'm doing. But in the end, it's it has to feel like it's about people and what they do. And I guess somehow the very fact of of pursuing that of of watching people live their lives it, it feels like pessimism is too easy at least for me hmm. um it 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 feel i mean this book one thing that that is discussed overtly in one part of the book and i think it's sort of clear throughout is that is a kind of awareness that storytelling is always an artifice and there's one character who actually has a habit of telling her when she reads fairy tales to her kids and, and they end happily ever after. She points out that that's only because that's where the story ended and that all these terrible events probably <laughs> happened after that, that they that they aren't including like, you know, the princess gets old and the, and the prince doesn't want her anymore or that, you know, everyone, you know, um, people invade and everyone's killed. And of course, her kids are crying. Um, but so I try I. I I guess there, I, I felt a, a, an awareness that optimism or that a kind of um, comic, a kind of comic framework. And I mean that in the, in the sort of literary critical 
notion. I, I tried to instill an awareness that I was that this is a more comic world we're living in in this book, but that that is a choice and a construct. Another view of the same material could see it very differently. That it's all about how you frame it. Mm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The question of what these social media devices in the novel and then in our own world are linked to in terms of our drive and intention is is one I think of affinity, how we connect to one another when we can never truly know someone completely, as you said. And it courses through this novel like it's lifeblood. An anthropologist named Miranda Klein researches, quote, the genome of human inclinations. And that social science is used to build the hard science research into human connection and consciousness that will ultimately become a form of collective memory. Fiction has long been interested in collectivities, but it's rather bad at representing them because it clings to those individual consciousnesses. In the unique form of Candy House, are you trying to represent a collectivity of memories and experiences? And what are the benefits to fiction in attempting to represent collectivity? It's such an interesting question. I mean, it's funny because you say fiction clings to individual consciousnesses, but in a way, it, it kind of has to. I mean, in the end, how can we write fiction that's just about groups. I mean, mm -hmm. even if you think about like the kind of social novels of the 19th century, people like Zola, you know, he, he for sure was writing about issues and he did his research, he was a very journalistic writer, like Germinal is about the, you know, the, all of the injustices around coal mining in France. But in the end, he's got to write about people <laughs> or no one's going to read it. I mean, you know, it, it, the collective, in one sense is is like a bunch of numbers that's sort of where data lives but what i love about what you just said is that one thing that occurred to me is that in a sense what i'm replicating in this in this book is the experience of moving through the collective consciousness in that just as with goon squad i'm moving in and out of individual consciousnesses which is mm -hmm. what fiction always does um and 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 I guess in in thinking about the novel that way, I felt happy because I thought this is I, I've basically in I've conceived of a fictional machine that does what in fact I am doing and what every novelist does in the course of writing this book. And I guess what I liked about that is that of course there is tremendous tension between social media and a lot of the entertainment technology we have at our disposal and the reading of novels. I mean, it is, you know, no secret that fewer people read fiction than used to. And if you think about the 19th century, when there was no record, you know, before, let's say, recorded music, you know, film, um, and, you know, all kinds of other 
conduits to stardom nowadays. Fiction, right, fiction was it. I mean, that was how people consumed st narrative stories. Um, so we've we're, we've drifted a long way from that. But I guess in the moment of thinking about the analogy between this machine and what my own book was doing, I felt like I was casting my lot with with the fiction writers and the fiction readers. And in a way, I guess, asserting the uniqueness that 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 I think this form still retains. Hmm. I like that very much. Of the many layered intellectual engagements that obsess the characters in Candy House, I was especially interested in how authenticity and artificiality become central to the novel's concerns. One of my favorite examples of the search for authenticity is Alfred Hollander, a character who you track in his quest for authenticity, which leads him to begin screaming in public. The negative attention he receives feels so much richer and truer than the fakery he observes in everyday pleasantries. A decade ago, David Shields argued that the path forward for art was via radical authenticity to meet our reality hunger. Um, is your work engaged at all in this dialogue about artificiality and authenticity? I think it's, I don't know if it's engaged in the dialogue, but I'm interested in the tension that is inherent in mediated experience. And this is something that the, um, that Daniel Borston wrote about very compellingly in a book called The Image, which had a lot of influence on me um, years ago. It's, it's a bit outdated now for a number of reasons, not his basic thinking, but the way he expresses it. Um, and the examples that he uses, because his book came out in 1961. It's almost incredible how perfectly it applies to every form of media I've seen to this day. And the hmm. basic idea is that the more we feel that our experience is mediated, the more deeply we hunger, to use Shields's word, for authenticity, and the more mediation the world of media tries to satisfy that hunger through ever through ever greater feats of mediation and oh, artificiality wow. so this is how you end up with reality tv and of course we need to put reality in quotes there because it's utterly <laughs> it's not only performative but you know edited uh and and processed into entertainment um and so i that phenomenon is fascinating to me because of, again, I guess I'm really obsessed with paradoxes, um, but the paradox of looking to media to give us the authenticity we crave precisely because we are so utterly mediated <laughs> in so many parts of our lives. So I, I take no credit for that, um, for that, that uh, identifying that mechanism, but it has been a source of endless fascination to me. That is so prophetic in the 1960s, thinking about layers upon layers of mediation. I, it's 61. amazing. 61. I mean, the, wow. You know, the Vietnam War had not been televised yet. Mass media as we know it didn't exist. What he was talking about was basically television, um, because that was what had occurred in the 1950s. And it's, it's a really fascinating book a little marred for a contemporary audience, not only by the fact that the examples are, of course, outdated, but that it's written in a very patriarchal sort mm. of 
Christian with a kind of a vibe that I think feels really outdated and a little objectionable to a contemporary audience. And it's funny because I was teaching at Penn a couple of years ago and I signed the book having not reread it in maybe 10 years. <laughs> uh -oh. And when I did, I thought, oh, I can't, I, this isn't going to work. So I ended up actually reading, assigning parts of it, but not the whole thing and having to kind of frame it as in some ways an artifact of another era that now to us comes off as very sexist, very patriarchal, very Christian, and, and a world in which people of color seem not to exist at all. So, mm. but some, some grad student should revisit this book because <laughs> it, is, it is so smart at its core and so correct, I think. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't argue with that central conceit. No. In, in the chapter, Lulu the Spy, you drop us in 2032 in the consciousness of Lulu, who is a, quote, beauty, a citizen spy who uses sexuality to engage in covert activities for the government. As we read, we move from initially assuming that she's a robot or AI, but we come to learn that she's a human with enhanced technological capabilities. Her abilities, ironically, allow her insights into the very nature of her humanity. Many of those insights are slyly feminist critiques of patriarchy. For example, quote, registering as young is especially welcome to those who may not register as young much longer. And quote, the failure of your new host to, to acknowledge you may indicate that women do not register in his field of vision. Or finally, a beauty in a diaphanous lavender bathrobe can go anywhere as long as she appears to be delivering herself to someone. How did you decide to make Lulu's artificiality a machine for this kind of critique? It wasn't a decision, um, which is, I feel like this is a refrain in my answers. <laughs> I like um, this refrain, though. <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was a discovery that I made pretty quickly and, was in, and found very interesting. You know, what, what got me into writing about Lulu in that way were other things. I was interested in Twitter, especially at 140 characters. It's, it, it, I don't think I would have been moved to write a story that could be tweeted um, at, at 280, but there's a big difference. So part of it was just an interest in what kind of story could be told in these short utterances. Hmm. And I was very interested in trying to work with a a genre, take, take a, a character that I had dealt with previously in a more naturalistic way and import that character into a real genre piece, sort of redraw that character, if you will, in genre terms. And that inspiration came from a book that I have to acknowledge called The Three Pigs um, by David Wiesner, who's an amazing illustrator and writer. And th this book is built around the notion that the three pigs escape the wolf by popping out of their story. And then they move in and out of other stories. And depending on what story they enter, Wiesner draws them totally differently. So at one point they're, they're in black and white ink drawings. In another, they are in a cartoon form. 
that's a book of nursery rhymes. So I, I, as I was reading this to my kids repeatedly, because when you read to kids, of course, it's never just once. <laughs> I found myself thinking, what, how could I do that with fiction? That is such an interesting idea. So that was another thought I had, that I was importing Lulu into a spy story. Um, and then another interest that I had was just stories in the form of lists, because lists are a fascinating form of inadvertent storytelling mm -hmm. in that if I, you know, if you show me your shopping list, I can learn all kinds of things about you, not because you're trying to explain them to me, but because behind this very pedestrian, um, you know, list of items is a whole series of facts that I can discern by looking at that list of items. So anyway, those were the kinds of things that got me into it. But as I was writing it, and actually more after I had a first draft, when I was reading it through, I then recognized that it really read as a kind of commentary on gender relationships. And that was fascinating. So I thought, great, let's, let's do that. But it happened, it, it, it came there spontaneously without my knowledge. Do you know Umberto Eco's book of lists? It's his uh, collection of a million different kind of lists from antiquity to the present as story. That's so interesting. I, I have loved Echo, and I, but I have not read that. I studied him in college to some degree and um, have found his thinking very useful, but I, I'm actually making a note of that. Well, clearly yeah. he was imbuing that idea into you, even if it was not as direct as you having seen the book. It's a For beautiful, sure. it's a beautiful uh, coffee table book ac actually put out by ah. Pantheon. And, but it's very, it, it just reading through it, it feels like a theory of the list. That is so interesting. I mean, I wonder if somewhere along the way I did encounter it. I, I find that so much of what ends up being manifest in my work is placed there unconsciously um, and almost to such a degree that if I had been conscious, some of this stuff is so obvious that I'm not sure I would do it. Um, just as one example, you know, um, A Visit from the Goon Squad ends, begins and ends in some sense with two people named Sasha and Alex. And they have a, a one night stand in chapter one and Alex is sort of remembering Sasha at the very end. And I did not know when I when I wrote any of that, that the names Sasha and Alex are the same name, that Sasha is a nickname. Oh, for that's Alexander. right. Oh, that's right. Fascinating. I mean, my work is full of these <laughs> coincidences. And, and honestly, you know, back to the, our original the original topic, your question about what made me interested in consciousness. I think this is part of it, because my my writing process is a constant reminder that I know so much more than I know. And that leads to the natural question of, you know, where is it and mm -hmm. how can I get to it? <laughs> where is, can I find out a little more about it? Um, I guess I'm just always aware of the chasm between conscious and unconscious because writing anything good for me requires sort of circuiting around my conscious mind, which is very limited, and opening up to all the stuff that I don't know I know. Hmm. I love that. I wanted to talk just for a second about the novel's partitions. And it strikes me that their names, build, break, drop, 
and build are also the rhythmic code for electronic dance music. They essentially describe the musical version of a narrative arc with the tension being built up until the bass drop. There's a major music-related section in which Lana and Melora try and save their father's record empire. But what were the parallels you wanted to play with between the narrative arcs of the novel and of dance music? Well, it's interesting. I'm not a big electronic dance music aficionado, um, but I had certain reasons for wanting to think about, I, 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 get, I think about narrative a lot when I listen to music. I guess I'll start there. So for example, you know, A Visit from the Goon Squad is overtly constructed as a concept album. It's a big story told in small parts that sound very different from each other, if you will. And I think a lot about sound, both literal and metaphoric, when I'm writing. First of all, sound is just one aspect of the language that, that as a writer, ideally, you know, one harness, I harness it to my advantage, that the sound of the language, the rhythm of the language, it's a tool that is that can add to the quality of fiction. So I'm always thinking about that. And in my writing group, we only read aloud. So we actually oh, wow. are, are listening to that stuff all the time. So that's one thing. And then, you know, I, I'm also interested, like as I listen to music, I'll sometimes notice effects. And I, I don't play an instrument. I can't read music. So I'm really not a very musical person. But I remember after finishing Goon Squad, listening to a song by Nada Surf, which is a kind of indie band that I really like. And, and thinking about the fact that as opposed to a, a more conventional song where, you know, there's a melody and there's a bridge and then kind of circularity and then we're done. In this one, the song ends with a, a rhythm or a, a kind of deep pulse of, of sound that was there the whole time, but I wasn't aware of it. And the mm. song ends with that deep pulse asserting itself. So that got me thinking about other ways to, could I, again, my question is always, just as with the David Wiesner book, can I do that in fiction? What would that be like? What, how, what would that be in fiction form? Which led me to think about with this book, which is a kind of sibling to a book that is overtly constructed around a musical genre, the concept album, what would be a musical frame that would that would encompass material that's organized and and sort of driven by a different set of principles more a sense of as i mentioned before like moving between worlds um you know a sense of one thing yielding to another rather than everything tying together and I was reading an article by a woman in The New Yorker by a woman who worked in um, Silicon Valley for a while. And she was talking about how she would listen to electronic dance music while she was working. And that that sense of the, the, the build, the break, and then the drop would mimic her work experience in huh. ways that felt really kind of useful. Um, and so I guess that was when I first even became aware of those terms, I will confess. Although as soon as I read it, I thought, oh, yes, I recognize that. But the, the, the way in which that, that kind of musical structure works is so different from something like a concept album. It really is about one beat sort of infiltrating and ultimately dissipating 
Mm -hmm. the, the prior one. It's what it's it feels more like moving between worlds than a concept album structure, which is creating a sense of a big world through all of these diverse pieces kind of, you know, being juxtaposed and working together and against each other. So that was exciting to me. And I found myself listening to some EDM and thinking, yes, this, this is a musical structure that feels closer to what I'm trying to do now. And yet, and, and, and using it as an organizing principle is a kind of very faint connection to Goon Squad and also an assertion of the differences between the two books. So all of those things made me interested in those terms. That is fascinating. Um, before I let you go, I, it's not an overstatement to say that my audience will be sitting on the edge of their seats wanting to know what you've been reading and loving recently. Would you be willing to share some recommendations with us? Sure. Um, I just read Matrix by Lauren Groff. Um, oh, I, I love think that she, book. <laughs> she is one of the greats. Um, I'm not going to say my generation. She's much younger than I am, but she's she is really a writer who is already at the top of her game and I think only going to get better and stronger. And it's going to be thrilling to see what that brings. Um, so Agreed. I love that book. Um, I just read Tom Jones moving to a very different century, 18th. Um, which I, you know, is, is, uh, I, I try to stay closely in touch with the, the evolution of the novel. So I'm mm. always reading 19th century and, and even 18th century. So for example, last summer I read Clarissa, the oh, wow. longest novel written in English. <laughs> well done. <laughs> an absolute masterpiece and an epistolary novel. Of course, I have a, an epistolary chapter in the candy house and letters are another example of, you know, kind of a fascinating genre for fiction to make use of because they provide an immediate transport into someone's interior life. Although, you know, interior life that is being curated for another reader. Um, so I really, really enjoyed that. There's a first novel that came out in the last couple of years that I really, really loved called Kingdom Tide by Rye Curtis, which I think is really magnificent and I think was was not did not get the attention that I would have loved to see it get. And let's see, I have a, a dear friend and, and colleague named James Hanaham, who um, who has a new book coming out this fall. And I'm not actually sure what it's being called, but that I read that recently and absolutely loved it. It's about a trans woman being released from prison. Hmm. Um, and re-entering her old life. Uh, so those are some immediate suggestions. Those are amazing. Um, and any call out to Clarissa is a brave one, um, indeed. <laughs> well, I think Clarissa is an, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not too long. <laughs> it's maybe a little too long. An, an abridged version, I think, could do all that it does, probably. But for anyone who questions whether we can write across gender, um, for example, it, this is an immediate answer to that. I mean, this is by a man at a time when sexism was just, you know, so deeply ingrained in the culture and the law that the very use of the word sexism to describe it, it just sounds ridiculous. Um, it was just, uh, you know, an era when women were 
property. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is exactly what it is about. And it, what I love about it is that it's so extreme. It pushes its material to an, the absolute limit. And it is, it is therefore so shocking, so appalling. Um, and, and I just, that's fantastic. I mean, anyone who can do that is doing good work. And so I was riveted. I think you might actually convince some people to read it with that description of it. So uh, I'm I, here's hoping for the, the the future of either the full or the abridged Clarissa. I, I think it's, you know, it's such a challenge, I think, especially for younger readers, not to be put off by things about fiction that feel alien. Like, it would be easy to say, oh, this is outrageous. I mean, Clarissa starts with a woman being imprisoned by her family because she won't marry the imprisoned in her room but really imprisoned she's not allowed to leave her room Mm -hmm. because she won't marry the guy they want her to marry and it would be easy to throw the book across the room and say well this is outrageous she's not being treated well plus i can't relate to this this would never happen now but i i feel like in doing that the reader gives up a huge series of opportunities. (laughs) One is to find out from the inside what it actually felt like to live in such times. I mean, fiction is a time machine unlike anything else I've experienced. And I say that as someone who had to do a massive amount of research to write my novel, Manhattan Beach, and, and, you know, was looking for ways to find the greatest amount of information about another era compressed into the smallest possible form. And the answer was fiction. Hmm. So one thing is just the curious to have this one's curiosity about what it felt like to live in such times answered. But the other thing is just, you know, if, if, if we can frame this properly and not be, not feel offended by the material, it's very easy to make a leap into something much more interesting, which is to think about it as an examination of a set of mores and conventions that are deeply unfair. And in fact, that is what the book is. Hmm. It is an examination and a, and an, a, a searing, brutal indictment of a set of rules that are absolutely barbaric. So in that way, it, it, it transcends its time as any really good work of art does, anything that's lasted. Has, has found a way in the end, not to be of the time that it produced it, but to be about the time that produced mm. it. That's an amazing distinction. And I, I, I wish they could put that as a blurb for Clarissa. And, <laughs> and, and I feel like that understanding of history through fiction is so important. And I, and I hope that um, I can pass that along to my students, because it's something that I think fiction does so, so wonderfully to be about its time. I think everyone should be an English major. So (laughs) good work. Thank you. Well, Jennifer, this has been such a rich conversation, and I feel hopeful, if not necessarily for the world, then for fiction's possibilities. And I'm I'm grateful to you for coming on the show. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, that's all from me today. My enormous thanks to Jennifer Egan. 
Many congratulations to her on the publication of The Candy House, which you can purchase today by clicking the link in the episode notes or going to burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of Jennifer's recommendations and links to our previous episodes. Thanks, as always, to my listeners. It means the world to me that you continue to tune in. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.